if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up. We are going to be in Luke 4, uh, ch- uh, chapter 4, verses 14 through 30. Uh, if you're new here, you haven't been here in a while, um, we've been going through Luke, and uh, we've just begun uh, Jesus' ministry. So we've looked at John the Baptist. John the Baptist has come on the scene proclaiming the way for Jesus. Jesus has been baptized, and we saw Je- Jesus' lineage, and then we also looked at Jesus' temptation, that Jesus has shown that by, uh, by his royal bloodline, as well as by his faithfulness, that he is worthy of being the Son of God. He's shown that he's made of the right stuff. And so now that he has been sanctioned as the Son of God, the question is, what is the Son of God going to do? What does his ministry actually look like? How will he display this kingdom that is coming? And so the first instance we get of, king, of Jesus explaining his kingdom coming is when Jesus comes to his hometown in Nazareth. And so that's where we're going to pick up today, uh, starting in verse 14. Read along with me. It says, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. And recovery of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today... This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, All in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Talk about a sermon that started out good and then turned out to be a different matter. The big idea that I think that we should take from this passage, the thing that really stands out, um, is that Christ's kingdom, Christ's kingdom offends the entitled and prideful. His kingdom offends the entitled and the prideful. But it comes to those that are needy, that are broken, that are humble. 
Another way to say it is that God's grace antagonizes those who believe they're morally good and self-sufficient. And it comes to those who realize they're desperate and broken. The passage can be broken down into two major sections. Uh, verses 14 through 21 uh, really talk about Jesus' homecoming and, uh, and they introduce his sermon. And then verses 22 through 30 um, talk about Jesus' exposition of the text, how he kind of he goes on and expounds on it and it shows the, the crowd's response to Jesus. So you imagine as Jesus comes in, uh, he goes to Nazareth. Nazareth was a pretty small town. It was pretty obscure. In fact, Nathaniel, one of the 12 disciples, asked, is there anything good that can come from Nazareth? And so Nazareth was, uh, wasn't the most popular place uh, in the world to go to. And so Jesus, as he traveled around, was the homegrown hero come back to town. He was the guy that everybody knew. I mean, for the past 30 years, Jesus had grown up on their streets. He'd eaten with them. He'd walked with them. He'd played with them. He'd mourned with them and celebrated with them. And so they knew Jesus, right? I mean, he's Joseph's son. He's the carpenter. He's done work for me. I've helped him out here. And so they felt that they knew Jesus, but Jesus has left home. He's gone. He's started his ministry and he's preached in the surrounding area. And it seems that he has a knack for it. He's doing pretty well. And the, the reports have have gone out into all the towns and they've come back that Jesus is back. Jesus is here. And so as you can imagine, Jesus comes in for synagogue as was his regular custom on a Saturday. And it's packed, right? The synagogue's packed. Everybody is there because they're eager to see what's Jesus going to say? What's Jesus going to do? And so they're gathered together and at the end of synagogue at the end of service they have a custom where they would ask and anybody could come up and they handed the scroll to jesus and what would happen is that the person would stand up and they would read a text right so they would gave him the scroll of isaiah now just so you know they didn't have the bible like we have right they didn't have like even the entire old testament what would likely happen is that in synagogue they usually had the torah which is the first five books of the old testament and then they would occasionally have a psalm or Isaiah, and they would grab a scroll, right? The whole book was on a scroll, so these were some big, thick scrolls. And they would have to kind of, like, unwind it and search for their place. And so they would, he, like, unbound and unwinded the scroll. And Jesus intentionally found the passage he was looking for. He found Isaiah 61. And the, the thing that would happen is that after he would read the text, he would sit down. He would sit down, and he would then disclose, and everybody else would stand up. And so I think that was a good idea, that the preacher sit down and everybody else stand up for the service. So I was thinking maybe we should, you know, like, I mean, reverse. So he would, he would sit down, and he would expound on it. And the passage he picked, Isaiah 61, was a classic passage. They would have known, right? It would have been like me today opening up Revelation and people kind of being like, oh yeah, like we're going to talk about something interesting today. You know, we're going to talk about, you know, the coming deliverance and salvation. We're going to talk about world politics and, and all these things. We're going to talk about judgment and we're going to come about the coming deliverer and how the world's going to end. And so as Jesus reads Isaiah 61, they would have been familiar with this passage. They would have been excited about the passage that Jesus was preaching but Jesus sits down and gives the best, shortest sermon ever. He says, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, it, 
for me, it kind of strikes me as odd. You know, like in studying the passage, you're kind of like, oh, well, he says it has been fulfilled. Right? I mean, that, that seems a little strange, right? I mean, that's a past tense. And Jesus has just started his ministry. He hasn't actually done any of these things. He hasn't healed, you know, he hasn't healed the blind. He hasn't, uh, you know, set at liberty those that are captive or set those free that are oppressed. He hasn't done any of those things yet. And so wouldn't it be more likely for Jesus to say, this will be fulfilled? Or, hey, just wait and see, track my ministry, and these things are coming your way. You know, like, no, he says, this has been fulfilled. How is it that he can claim that those things have been fulfilled, right? I mean, it was pretty obvious to everyone except for Jesus that this hasn't been fulfilled, right? There are still poor people that were walking the streets, even amongst them. There are still captives that are in jail unjustly, namely John the Baptist. There are still people that are oppressed and that are in massive debt. And so everybody's listening to this and, and is probably thinking, well, how, how is this reality? How is it that this is, has been fulfilled, and the key to understanding what Jesus is saying, how it has been fulfilled, is he says that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me. And we miss out what that means, but that word anointed, it's the same word that means Messiah and Christ. Both Messiah and Christ mean the anointed one. And what Jesus is saying is that he has been anointed with God's spirit. And we see it in the baptism, and we see that the spirit is with him in the wilderness. And so what Jesus is saying is that God has messiahed me. He has Christ me. He has anointed me with the Holy Spirit. And all of this, the healing of the blind, the setting at liberty those that are oppressed and the captives, the release of debt, all of that is found in me. These are not things to be fulfilled, but rather these are, this is a person that fulfills these things. And so Jesus is saying, I am he. I am the Messiah. And so this, all of this is fulfilled in me. Now, the ironic thing is, is they actually like the sermon. You know, I mean, it's kind of surprising because here Jesus comes and he says, hey, I'm the Messiah. And it says that they marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And so it seems that they probably thought, hey, this might be good news for us. He's a hometown guy. I mean, he's done some pretty cool things in those other towns. Maybe, I mean, what is he going to do for us? And so they have this sense of entitlement, this sense of indebtedness that Jesus owes them. Jesus discerns this. It's always fun when Jesus knows your heart and knows your mind and you haven't said anything. And so Jesus knows and he says, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What's he saying? He's saying that, right, if you're a doctor, you don't just go around healing everybody else and then say, well, I'm sick, so I guess I'll just neglect myself. No, right, if you're a doctor, you would heal yourself. You would take care of yourself as well as those that are sick. And so they're saying, well, we're your hometown people, Jesus. We're, you know, we've known you for a long time. If you've healed others, if you've taught others, how much more are we entitled? And he says, you'll, you'll say that, you'll think that to me. But then he turns, he says, but no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. And he says, there's a familiarity that you have with me. There's an entitlement and a pride that you have 
There's an unbelief that stems because you've seen me for so long that you're not going to accept what it is. And it's interesting because Jesus, like, most of the time we would stop at, they all spoke well of him, right? We're like, man, great sermon, it's short, it's quick, everybody liked it, let's get out. Jesus, on the other hand, realizes that they liked it and therefore they haven't understood it. The gospel hasn't come to their heart because it hasn't really offended them. It hasn't really struck their sensibilities. And so they've misunderstood the kingdom that Jesus is bringing in. You see, when they heard Isaiah 61, they said, this must be us. We are the poor, right? I mean, we have people that don't have enough money. We are the oppressed. Roman occupation. We don't even have our own national freedom. You know, I mean, we are those that are blind and afflicted we are those that are in debt and so they naturally and intrinsically took this text and they filtered it through themselves they filtered it through their worldview and through their context and they didn't stop to understand the deeper meaning and so jesus elaborates that deeper meaning on two old testament texts and it causes them so much offense that they want to kill him he starts with elijah And he said that there were many widows in the days of Elijah. So the story that he quotes is in 1 Kings 17. Elijah is a huge prophet in Israel at the time. The nation of Israel is idolatrous. They're chasing after um, Baal and other false gods, Ashereth. And so King Ahab is the king at this time. And Elijah is confronting the king. He's confronting Ahab about the nation's sin. And he's coming against him and calling the nation to repent. And as a judgment against the nation, God tells Elijah to tell Ahab, it's not going to rain for three and a half years. It's it's not going to rain until God tells me it's going to rain. And so he sends this drought to Israel because of their rebellion against him. And Elijah goes. And where is it that God sends Elijah? I mean, sure, there's lots of people in Israel. There are lots of widows. There are lots of people hurting in Israel. But where is it that God sends Elijah? God sends Elijah to a foreign country and Sidon, to a widow who was a pagan and who was poor. And he sends Elijah there. He says, there were many widows that were in that time. Why is it that God sent Elijah, a prophet, to Israel, to a foreign nation, to a foreign country? He says, next, there were also many lepers in the time of Elisha. Elisha was Elijah's predecessor. He came after Elijah. And you see the same kind of problem. Israel's idolatry, Israel's rebellion. And Elijah is there pronouncing God's judgment and God's, God's truth in the midst of the land. And all of a sudden, there's a, a king from Syria, Naaman. Syria was an enemy of Israel. They waged war against Israel. They slaughtered Israel. They would make uh, they would make attacks and steal people from Israel. It's in fact one of those attacks that saves Naaman. Naaman is this chief of the army of Syria and he contracts leprosy. Leprosy was incurable in their day. It stunk, it smelled, it made you unclean and you, even though he was super successful, he was still seen as and held at a distance because of his disease and he wasn't able to be cured from it and so trying his hand at everything finally one of the girls that he had stolen from israel spoke up and says there's a prophet in israel and he can heal my lord and so naaman goes to israel and elijah 
tells him, go and cleanse yourself in the river Jordan. Dip yourself in it seven times and you will be clean. And he takes offense at first. He's like, listen, I know the Jordan. That thing's dirty. <laughs> like, there's trash all around. Like, I have a couple that are rivers in my country that are way cleaner. Like, why don't I just go and take a bath in that? But his servants speak to Naaman and say, did, did Elijah not say that you would be clean? Did he not say that you would be healed if you but obeyed? And so Naaman goes and he dips himself in the river Jordan seven times and he's cleansed. After hearing this, after Jesus telling these illustrations, something changes in the crowd, right? They go from speaking well of him to saying, all right, who wants first dibs at throwing him off the cliff? And they march Jesus out to the edge of the cliff and they go to, to kill him. They go to kill him. And it says, but Jesus walked through their midst. Why? Because his time was not yet. God's provision was on Jesus. And his time was not set. And so he walked in and through the midst of them with, I'm sure, a humble and calm and courageous posture. Why is it that they were so offended? Why is it that this... Because think about, think about who Jesus is talking to. These were pretty faithful, consistent synagogue goers. They were Bible believers, right? They heard the message of the Bible every week. They were faithful. They strive for holiness. All of these things. But yet they hear this message and it offends them. It grinds against them so much that they're willing to kill somebody that they've known for 30 years. It's because he tells them that their understanding of the kingdom is backwards. You see, they had approached God saying, I'm entitled. I'm worthy. I am deserving And what he said is he said that God's not coming to you. God's grace and God's kingdom doesn't come to the entitled, to the prideful, to the self-sufficient. God's kingdom and God's grace come to those that are humble, those that are broken. It does not matter their ethnicity. It does not matter their race or their their region. It does not matter their age. God's grace comes to those that are broken and those that are hungry. And this offended them. This cut them at the core, as it should us when we understand it. So we've gotten a little bit of commentary on the text. I want to look at four themes um, that we see throughout. The first thing I think that we should really, uh, that really convicts me is that uh, the passage talks about that familiarity can breed pride and entitlement. Familiarity can breed pride and and entitlement. Right, you can see it in all kinds of different ways. One of the ways I see it is you can tell when somebody first starts dating. Right, They start dressing up. They start looking a certain way. They start acting a certain way. And then as the relationship goes on, you know, there's more comfortability. There's more familiarity. And so there becomes more entitlement. And it's not that it creates it. It's not that familiarity creates it, but it reveals it. Because you start taking the other person for granted. You start taking the beauty and the the grace that has been given you for granted. I mean, I, I saw it uh, from Kansas City, so moved down to Florida five years ago, and it was like a vacation, 
right? You, I come down and I see palm trees and beaches and I'm like, this is awesome, you know? And then five years later, it just becomes every, it comes normal, right? Every day you kind of walk out and you're like, oh, this is just kind of what is, what's here. And you take it for granted. You assume that this is what is due you because this is what has been. And this is what you see here is that they've had 30 years with Jesus and they've grown accustomed. We, we eat with Jesus. We know his family. Isn't this Joseph's son? And so they've grown accustomed. They've grown familiar. And their familiarity has bred an entitlement and a pride that they think now that they can demand things of Jesus. That they think Jesus owes them one. And because of that, they have separated themselves from God's kingdom. Because of that, they are at odds with Jesus. And at least to the second point, is that following Jesus means that we won't always be accepted or our message received. Man, Jesus isn't afraid to offend people. And that's such a challenge to me because when I look at this text, I think, man, these are people that he grew up with. These are lifelong friends, family members. All of this are here. And think about that. Think about all the ways in which you feel pulled in that way. When you have a family member or you have a close friend that is asking you to do something that you know isn't right, that is kind of making a pull or a draw on you that you know isn't the Lord's leading in your life, Jesus has this with this group, this group of people that are saying, hey, we're close to you, we know you, so therefore you ought to give this. You ought to treat us like this. And Jesus isn't afraid to stand and say, no, my loyalties are with God. My faithfulness belongs to him. And I will be faithful even if it offends you, even if it leads you to the point of separation. And man, isn't that, for me, that's such a challenge because we don't want that. We want to be comfortable. We want everybody to like us. And following Jesus promises that people won't. If you really declare in your life that I'm going to follow Jesus, you're going to have people when you stand up for the truth, when you stand up for what Christ wants you to stand up for, they're going to be offended by you and are going to want to separate themselves from you or even be violent against you because what you've said has offended them. This means that what the church is about is not about being a seeker-sensitive place. We live in a culture that says that what the church should be is the church should be a place where seekers come you just don't see that model with Jesus. Jesus isn't afraid to up front lay in front of people the truth, to tell people up front. There's not a, a back door with Jesus. Let's just get them in the front door and tell them what they want to hear. And then later on, after they've kind of been sucked in, we'll give them the hard stuff. Jesus says up front. I mean, right, they liked the message. And Jesus says, oh, hold on. <laughs> Wait a second. You didn't really hear it. And he goes back and intentionally tells them the hard stuff because he says listen if you want to follow me if you want to really be a disciple you need to understand what the kingdom is and what my grace means and this is what it means and so in our lives we have to be willing to stand up for the truth we have to be willing to declare what christ has said with with love and with grace i don't think it brought christ joy to sit here and do that but i think that he realized that this was the way in which he loved them is by smashing the nationalism and the racism that was impregnant in them. You see, there was their racism stemmed so deep that it came and it became a part of their religion. 
I mean, as Jews, their racism stemmed first in Jerusalem and Judea, right? They were the holy ones. They were near the temple. And so they were holier and better than the Galilean region, right? The next circle out was the Galileans because they were wrought with the Gentiles. And so they were, you know, they were still okay, but they were, their accent was different. They spoke a little odd. And so they were even, they were even a little bit outcast from the Jerusalem and Judea crowd. And then you have the Hellenists, those that are spread out all throughout the world that are Greek-speaking. They're on another circle. And then you have Samaria, and then you have the Gentiles. And so you had this whole ring of racism of how they would treat people and how they would accept people and interact with them, who they would eat with and who they wouldn't, who they would hang out with and who they wouldn't. And Jesus breaks that. He smashes that. And he says, God's kingdom and God's grace is not defined by our ethnicity, it's not defined by our race, it's not defined by our age, it's defined by our need and our desperation. And this is news that we desperately need because for me it, it asks the question, who am I, how am I relating to people? Do I find that I'm only relating to people that are natural to me, that are around my age, around my race, around my same demographic and lifestyle? Because God's grace should so bind us together that we are unified with people that are entirely different than us, that are of entirely different race and background and age. We should be so bound together because of his grace and his love that people step back and say, how did that happen? That doesn't make sense. It offended them. It rubbed them at the core. The third thing that I think this text says is it says that we must realize our need for God's kingdom if it's ever to come for us, right? He talks about that. Jesus says in Isaiah, he says, I've come to preach good news to the poor. Now I've never been really super poor, right? I've never lived on the streets or anything like that, but the poorest time I have had was in college, right? I've been a poor broke college before uh, a kid in college before. And so one of the things I'll tell you about my time of, you know, like poverty in college was that whenever there was free food, I was there. <laughs> Right? When you're a poor, broke college kid, you're like, hey, I'm not, beggars can't be choosers, right? So if somebody's got some free stuff, you're there, right? That's why you want to get college around, you just, college kids around, you just bring free food, because everybody's like, hey, I got nothing, so that's great for me. And that's one of the things about those that are poor, those that are broke, is that they are not picky, right? They're not saying, you know, like, eh, I'm not really sure. That's why when we have people that come here like, yeah, you know, I'm just not feeling that to eat. I'm like, you're not really that hungry. You're not really that broke if you're really that choosy. <laughs> because one of the things that poverty means is it means we can't be choosy, but we're instead, we're abundantly grateful for whatever is given. We are so hungry and desperate that whatever provision comes, we're thankful for it because we ain't got nothing to lean on. And Jesus says, that this is how you must come to God. That this poverty that is there isn't simply material, right? It's that, but it's more. He says the poverty that we must have is poverty of spirit. Is that we must come to God realizing that we have nothing. We have to lay aside all of the moral justifications that we think we have. Every way in which we think that we're better than somebody else, in which we think that God owes us. God, don't you see I've been faithful to church, I've read my Bible, I've given this, and so therefore you are due these things. All of that has to be laid aside. It is only that those who come that are spiritually poor, that can have the kingdom. And you see, that's exactly why they didn't receive it, is because they weren't spiritually poor, they were spiritually middle class. Right? And their spiritual middle class said, 
that kind of offends me. I think I've done some pretty good things. I think I've showed up faithfully. I've been consistent enough. I think I treat others good enough. You know, I think God should owe me. I think God should give me some things that I want. My life should be like this. I shouldn't have this sickness. I shouldn't be in this stage of life right now. God, don't you see you owe me? And it's this that offended them, that God said, Jesus says that my kingdom doesn't come to you. My kingdom will not come to those that do not realize that they are spiritually poor. We have to first realize our poverty, our brokenness. All we need is need to come to Jesus. We must come with nothing. And only when we come with nothing, then can we have everything. You see, in Christ is the treasure of, is the hidden treasure of everything. In Him, we have the world. For He is Lord over all. And to have the Lord over all is to have everything. Only when we realize that we are poor, only when we realize that the oppression that we face isn't simply something external, isn't simply the circumstances around us, but the oppression that we face is spiritual, that we face oppression from our sin, we face oppression from Satan, only realize that the blindness that we have is that we don't see God as we ought to, only when we realize that the captives that Christ has come to set free is us from our sin. Only when we realize that Jesus has come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And what that was was Leviticus 25. It was the year of Jubilee. Right? There was the Sabbath. One in every seven days you had rest. One in every seven years all debts were forgiven. Right? All debts were forgiven. The land was to rest. And everyone was to to be still, to rest, to trust in God's provision for their life. And one in every 50 years was called the year of Jubilee. It was a great year of celebration, a year where every debt was gone, where everyone celebrated, every land that had been bought went back to its original owner. It was this great year where God's people were finally able to rest, not in their provision, not in their ability to work, but instead God's provision in their life. And Jesus said, I've come to declare this to you, that you would you'd finally be able to rest from the deep need to justify yourself in your work. That your identity doesn't stem from how good of how good a job you do at your work. It doesn't stem from your how good of a father or good of a parent or good of a husband or a wife you are. Your identity stems from me. Find rest in me. Come to me. Jesus proclaims these things that only when we realize these things are, is his kingdom able, able to come to us. The last thing that we see as we close is that we are to carry out Jesus' mission here on earth. All right, What Jesus came to do, proclaim the kingdom, is exactly what he calls us to do, is that we are to proclaim the kingdom coming in. We are to proclaim his gospel. And this means that it's going to be life to some and it's going to be death to others. In 2 Corinthians 2, 15-16, Paul talks about it. He says, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? As we model what it means to bring good news to the poor. All right, what does it mean to bring good news to the poor? 
It means to fight against injustice. It means to see institutions of slavery and seek to bring freedom to them. But, but more than that, it means to proclaim that salvation is found in a God who lost power. And he comes to those that are poor, proclaiming that they can find wealth in him. We proclaim these things. This is our mission. Piper, I think, uh, gives a good quote. He says, to be a Christian is to move toward need, not comfort. To get up in the morning and to go to bed at night dreaming, not about how to advance my comforts, but how to advance some great God-centered cause. Planning a passion means planning a people who don't spend themselves day and night pursuing self-preservation and self-exaltation and self-recreation but who pursues something bigger and greater than themselves or their family or their church. We are to, to bring in Christ's kingdom. This is bigger than just us. It's bigger than just our church. It's bigger than just our family, that this is to consume our lives. I mean, this has been my prayer lately, is that I don't want to be caught up in small, trivial things. I don't want to waste my life on things that don't matter. I want to spend my life on eternity. I want to invest in things that are going to last forever. I want to go to bed dreaming at night what God would do and seeing a hunger and passion grow in our city. I want to see people come to know Christ. I want us to be broken as a church that we would be humbled and come together and pray and see God bring revival in our families, in our lives, as well as in this city. Let us not settle for things that are insignificant, for things that don't satisfy Let us instead have a deeper hunger, have a deeper desire for satisfaction in Christ, that we would go to bed dreaming of what God would do, and we would wake up with it on our minds, that God would put a hunger and a fire, that God would light a dream in us, that would move us, that we would give all of ourselves up for it, and we would leave nothing behind. John 1, 9-13, it says, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. As we close, if you're here and Maybe you're not a Christian, and that can go both ways because this passage says that there are people that think that they're Christians and aren't. There are people that they have gone to church every day of their life. They have read the Bible consistently, but yet they come to God spiritually middle class, and they think that they bring something, and because of that, God's kingdom, God's grace has not entered their life. And so this is meant, if, if, if that's resounding with you, the Holy Spirit's convicting you. Christ is calling you to lay everything down to come to him poor and broken. And perhaps you're here and you say, man, I'm, I, don't, I don't know Christ. Or I feel like I'm too far away from Christ. I feel like I've messed it up too much. I feel like my sin's too far. What I want to I say is that this is exactly where Christ's kingdom comes. Christ's kingdom comes to the least, the last, and the broken. He comes to the Syrian army who, you know, army official who is leprosy, who has no claim on God, who has no entitlement of it, simply comes banking that God would be gracious and hoping in nothing else. He comes to the, the widow in a foreign land who has nothing to offer. He comes to us 
as we are overwhelmed by our brokenness, stand in desperation crying out for him to save us. Let us not be so familiar that we become entitled and prideful and we forget the grace of God that has saved us. Let us pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the amazing grace that you have lavished upon us, God. Forgive us in the ways and the times at which we take it for granted, at which we just grow familiar with your word, we grow familiar with hearing the gospel, and we forget that it is the power of salvation for all who believe. Let that power be refreshed. Set, set us on fire, God. Please implant in us a dream and a vision that, that helps us to leave aside some of these foolish pursuits and passions that are trivial. Move in us, Jesus. We beg of you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.